us pray. Lord, thank you again for this day and for your word. We pray that you will help us to be clear, uh, help me to be clear in what I say and help our ears and our hearts and our minds to be clear in what we receive from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes we talk about this here, um, that there seem to be there seems to be a trend lately of people just leaving church. When I was younger, which was a while ago now, um, the trend was more people church hopping. So people were still going to church, but they would go to one church for a while and they decided it wasn't really their style or they weren't getting fed or they, or they didn't like the worship and so they'd find another church. And sometimes... God does call us to move to a different church community, but but a lot of, when it's a trend, you have to start looking at it and wondering what's really going on here, and I think um, what was going on back then was kind of people were treating church as a consumer product that you, you well, I like this style or I, I like this brand, um, and so I'm going to go with this brand. Now, though, people are leaving churches and they're not going to church. They're not finding another church. They just leave. I don't know if, are you guys aware of this? Like, okay, besides me telling you. <laughs> um, what might be some reasons why people are leaving church and not looking for other ones, you think? Okay, maybe because they put their social life ahead of everything else. I mean, in the past, church was the social life. That's not so much true anymore. So maybe that's one reason. Okay, maybe they weren't made to feel welcome. True, sometimes jobs conflict. Maybe they didn't like what they were hearing. They want to do what the kids want to do. Maybe they are the kids. <laughs> yep. Well, that's true. There are sporting events and that kind of thing on Sundays. Okay, that's another reason. They might not want to hear that what they're doing is wrong. There are lots of reasons. I think all of those things are true, but I don't know that those reasons are necessarily the underlying reason for why people are leaving so many people are leaving church and not looking for another one. Um, I think what I'm seeing, because I, I work at this church, and we have this church, but then I have the pilgrimage, and I'm working with a kind of different group of people there. Many of, most of them are Christians too, but they're from different parts of the country, or they have different life experiences, and so I'm seeing lots of different things, and what I'm seeing in those spaces is sometimes people are leaving church because there are doctrinal differences, and sometimes they're leaving because they don't like what the church is saying, and sometimes they're leaving because the church doesn't like what they're saying, and they're kicking them out. Um, other times, people are experiencing spiritual, emotional, physical, and or sexual abuse in church. Or they're experiencing those things at home, but when they bring it to the church, the church supports the abuser and not the person that's being harmed. 
Um, and so people are like, well, I thought my church was supposed to be a safe place to support me, and they are actually supporting this person that is harming me, and, and I, don't, I don't like that, and so I can't be here anymore. Um, sometimes churches, people aren't leaving churches, but churches, this has happened for a long time, churches split because there's a significant piece of the church that believes one doctrine and another significant piece that believes a different doctrine and they can't seem to find common ground, they can't make it work, and so they split apart. Sometimes the reasons people are leaving church are legitimate reasons. Sometimes the reasons churches say, I'm sorry, but you need to go, are legitimate reasons, but sometimes it feels a little sketchy, like, for example, maybe it's sketchy that priests who molest children or pastors who molest women or encourage husbands to beat their wives get forgiven and get to keep ministering after a little while, while the abused people or people who advocate for, who aren't abused, but they advocate for more Christ-like behavior in churches, get kicked out. That's kind of sketchy. That doesn't sound like the kingdom to me. And it doesn't sound like the kingdom to a lot of people, and I think that's part of why <laughs> these things are happening. So let's acknowledge, first of all, there are many factors that are in play in these kinds of dynamics. There are many sides to many stories. There are lots of different individual cases that if you were going to look at each one, you might treat them differently than each other. But I have one theory that one of the reasons the church is in this particular trouble right now is that without intending to, many churches have read what is kingdom teaching of Jesus in this passage, Matthew 18, 15 to 35, and they have read it through an empire lens and or applied it with empire techniques. So we'll kind of unpack that as we discuss this, but um, this passage, let's just outline it, starting, Matthew 18, starting from verse 15, and you might want to look it up just so you can refer back to it as I'm talking about it. It starts off, Jesus is talking to his disciples, he was just talking to them in the verses right before this, he was talking to them about the little ones, and don't harm the little ones, and anybody who causes the little one, a vulnerable person or a child, or somebody in the kingdom of God who um, who's vulnerable, to stumble, they'd be better off if they had a millstone tied around their neck and they were just thrown into the ocean. That's exciting. Um, and so that's what Jesus has just been talking about, and now he's talking about, okay, you guys are the little ones. You're the little ones. I told you to be like, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is like a little one, and now I'm talking to you. This is what to do when somebody sins in your community, or some of the translations have it when somebody sins against you. Um, and so Jesus talks about that and he says, you're going to, if somebody sins, you are going to go, you who are aware of this sin are going to go to the person and you're going to talk to them about it. And if they don't listen to you, then you're going to bring a couple of other people from your group, your church community, and you're going to talk about it with some witnesses. And Jesus uses an Old Testament law from um, Leviticus, Numbers, I don't remember, um, to kind of back that up. It's good to have witnesses to this conversation and to 
the events that are being talked about. And then after that, if they're still not if they're still not on board, then you get the rest of the church community and you bring it there and decide how to deal with it. But if the person is not repentant, the whole church community agrees that this is a sin and the and the person is not repentant, then sorry, my friend, but you need to leave this community. You can't be part of this community because you're not acting in the interests of this community. So that there's that piece, and then it transitions to Peter says, okay, Jesus, so how many times do I have to forgive my brother or sister when they sin against me? And there's a discussion about that, and then Jesus tells a parable about a king and two servants. One servant owes up gazillion dollars to the king and the king forgives him because he asks but then the other servant owes the first servant a little bit of money and the first servant beats him up and everybody and the other servants get mad and say hey you forgave this guy a ton of money and he won't forgive this guy a little bit of money and the first servant gets jailed until he can pay his own debt <laughs> okay so that's the outline of the passage and it's easy to read it because we are we're born sinners and we are we grow up in empire and so it is really hard even when we're in the church even when we've been in the church our whole lives um, sometimes it's very difficult to read passages like this without allowing empire to kind of influence how we see it so the first error the empire error that I think we bring often or churches bring to this passage is we think that the first part is about church discipline as in there somebody in the church in the congregation is doing something wrong and the leadership is going to discipline that person i want to point out i don't Maybe I'm not remembering this right, and I'm not totally sure if this is super significant, but I have never heard the two sections of this passage preached together. I've never heard this church discipline passage preached with the forgiveness parable. And I think when they get separated, they can't, we can't think of them in terms of each other as influencing each other. And sometimes I think that this might be why we think about this as part one, how to do church discipline, part two, how to forgive, and somehow they're not connected. And when the church as an institution has power, which it has had in the Western world to varying degrees since Constantine was the emperor of Rome, it is easy to read passages like this as a way to keep order. And while you're keeping order, you are also keeping a power structure in place. And so how it often plays out is we read this chapter and we read, Part one, how does church leadership go through this process as quickly as possible so we can get the complicated people out of the church? Because they're messing it up for us. So we're going to do this thing that Jesus says, but we're going to, the leadership is going to do it and the people are going to get out of here because they're bothering us. And then we read part two, let's forgive and forget what our sinful church leader has done as quickly as possible because our whole setup is going to fall apart if we don't do that. Let's just forgive and forget. Wipe it out. We have, we're supposed to forgive. Jesus says to forgive, so our leader messed up. Maybe give him a timeout and then put him back there because we won't be able to function 
the way that we're set up. So let's say this again because I feel like sometimes we need these disclaimers. It is true. Sometimes there are divisive church members and they need to be removed. It's also true. Sometimes there are abusive pastors and they actually get challenged and removed in a godly way or they actually repent. However, very, very, very often the way these passages are applied and understood and taught is in terms of a person or a group of people in authority exercising authority over somebody else. It's about power structures and it's about empire. But the way that Jesus is telling this, the king is a kingdom power structure. And in the kingdom, the power structure is God's the king. Everybody else, everybody else, even the pastors, even the elders, everybody else, our siblings or our fellow servants, we're all on the same level. And this conversation that Jesus is having, this is not a, a how-to. Jesus is having a conversation with his family. This is a message to brothers and sisters. The whole chapter is for family. And we can see this. We talked about the transfiguration a few weeks ago when we did Gabe and Tara's vow renewal about how that is kind of a uh, hey, there's a wedding coming, reminder of what, what is coming. And since then, Jesus has been talking a lot in terms of family. He says, be like little ones. So wedding, little kids, now we're talking about siblings. Sibling squabbles. We are all the little ones. And so we need to care for each other. Don't cause each other to stumble. But siblings fight, right? <laughs> And so when disagreements or mistreatment occurs among the brothers and sisters, which is going to do in this still broken world, this is how to reconcile. The whole point of this whole passage is reconciliation because this is the heart of what Jesus came to do. This is not some random list of teachings that Matthew is compiling here. This is not about also not about how to get rid of the annoying person in church and still look righteous about it. It is about how to do everything possible to maintain unity and fellowship and membership among the people in the family. What Jesus is teaching here is how to be an example within God's family to the world of what reconciliation really is, how it really works. This is what the kingdom is really about. Reconciliation, that's the whole thing. The cross, as we've said before, and we need to keep in mind basically every Sunday now until the end of the year, the cross is coming more and more into Jesus' view. And so, it is true, even though he's talking about it to his disciples, nobody understands or expects that part. They, the disciples don't understand it. The Pharisees and the Sadducees don't expect it. The demons don't expect it. The demons do not know what God has planned here. Nobody gets this. But Jesus gets it, and the cross is more and more in his view, and he is approaching it. And so even though nobody else gets it, it is becoming more and more important to Jesus for his family to understand how to be his family. Jesus' coming death to forgive our sins on the cross and the disciples' sins and everybody's sins and his defeat of death by rising from the grave are the thing 
They are the thing that reconcile us to God, each other, creation, and ourselves. And receiving that reconciliation is the thing that distinguishes his family, his kingdom, from the empire. And the way that we receive that forgiveness and reconciliation is by resembling it. It's a family trait. Kingdom reconciliation is a family trait, and we are to be reconcilers. We are to be peacemakers. I'm really sad I didn't get to hear Donna Marie's sermon last week because she was talking about peace, and I feel like I could have tied it in here. But that's what we're supposed to be. And that means that we are always to work toward reconciliation within the family first. So, when your brother or sister sins against you, talk to them about it. If they're not buying it, bring in a couple of others. When Jesus ties in the Old Testament reference here, two or three witnesses, he's kind of saying, this is what I intended for my family from the beginning. This is what I intended for Israel. Israel was supposed to model this kind of thing. Also, when we bring in other people, it's good to go to the person first. When we bring in two or three other people who are trusted, who maybe are a little outside the situation, it keeps the person who is bringing the accusation honest, humble, and accountable. Also, they are able to witness the conversation that happens so they can see what was actually said. If that doesn't work, then you tell it to the church. This doesn't say, Jesus doesn't say, tell it to the pastor. He doesn't say, tell it to the elders. He says, tell it to the church. This is the family. By the way, this doesn't work very well in really super huge churches. It might work in a life group that's part of a really super huge church. Small churches are really good for this, though. (laughs) Um, So... You tell it to, you've you've had it out with the person, then you bring in a couple more people, they're still not getting it, but the the people that you brought in agree that this is a sin issue. So then you bring it to the whole church. You work together, you talk together, and you bring it to prayer. So when we do this in terms of family, it makes it both harder and more hopeful. It's harder because it's more personal. If you're a kid and you have a sibling and your sibling is doing something to you, what's your default? Yeah, mom! (laughs) That's, then you don't have to deal with it. You don't have to try to get along with your brother or sister that's bugging you. No one else in this family, though, no one else in this family right here is mom. I'm not mom. Nobody here is mom. Church leaders do not get to lord it over the flock. But also, dad is involved the whole time. If we're doing this right, we have to rely on dad, our heavenly father, for reconciliation from the very first step. Dad does not want his family to split up. When we are doing this with him, it ensures that our motivation is not to boot the other person, but to reconcile with them. But there's another empire error in this passage. Forgive and forget. That's impossible, you guys. 
<laughs> it's impossible. And that's not even what Jesus says to do here. Because after you go through this whole process, and you brought the whole church in, and the person's still like, no, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, thanks. Jesus says, treat such a person as you would a tax collector or a pagan. Interesting that Matthew recorded this as a tax collector, because Matthew was a tax collector. It's also not really clear what Jesus is saying to do with this person, because it seems like Jesus would say, you know, you're, Jesus has been loving Gentiles, pagans, outcasts, Matthew the tax collector, this whole time. And we know that the Jews weren't treating tax collectors or pagans very well. So is he saying, treat them as you would? Or as you would now that you are part of the kingdom family? Not really sure. But I think the point of this is, if someone is actively resisting repentance and reconciliation... If they are sinning against or abusing family members in some way, the rest of the family is agreed before God, oh, and the rest of the family is agreed before God that this is happening, that sinning person is not acting like a member of the family anymore. They are resisting the family resemblance, and so they must not be part of the family. This sounds harsh, but let's remember what Jesus said about his own biological family a bunch of chapters ago. Who are my mother and my brothers? My mother and sister and brothers are the people who do the word of God and obey it. So this person's not doing that. They're not part of the family right now. doesn't mean they can't get back into the family, but they are not resembling the family. They're not representing the family well. And how can we treat as family somebody who is damaging the rest of the family? We can't do that. And they continue to intend to do so to intend to do so. I was talking about this passage with a theologian friend of mine named Tyler Berkeley, and he said that when we practice rightly what Jesus is teaching here, the wronged party, the person who is sinned against, is guaranteed that sin will be addressed. If the wrong is so distinct that the whole community can agree that it's wrong and the person is still unrepentant, then what have we learned of this person? The harsh truth is they do not belong. Still giving them every benefit of the doubt, the community and they do not edify each other. Forgetting the sin in this case would harm the family. And so Jesus says after this, he says in verses 18 and 19, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. and Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. This passage we quote a lot when we're, when we're in a prayer meeting and there's only two people that show up, or morning quiet when there's only five of us or whatever. And it applies to those times, but the context in which Jesus is saying it is, when you're dealing with sin in the family and you're gathering in my name to deal with sin in the family, I'm right there. N.T. Wright says, we aren't left alone as we struggle to become the sorts of communities, families, and churches that Jesus is describing. God's presence is with us. Our actions on earth have an extra hidden dimension 
the heavenly counterpart of what we do here. This is what's implied when Jesus has us pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is why family resemblance matters. It's cosmic. It's not just what's happening here. It's happening in the heavens. And N.T. Wright goes on and says, When we pray together in Christian fellowship, we are therefore assured of being heard and answered. It's not just a promise that we will sense God's presence. It's a promise and a warning that God will see and know the innermost truth of everyone's heart. When we understand where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them, like that, it motivates us and it empowers us to work very hard, but also with real hope toward reconciliation and repentance. Also, it points to the fact that this kind of repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation that Jesus is talking about is supernatural. There is not one person on this planet that can do any of this correctly apart from God. I can't forgive like this. I can't discipline like this. Discipline. I can't. This stuff does not come naturally. And I've had conversations with people about forgiveness and can you do it yourself or not. And I've heard people say, yes, you can. But I don't agree that this is possible without the help of the Holy Spirit, which we have as members of the family. So then we get to Peter's question. I know we're getting long, but last week's sermon was short, I heard. So <laughs> so we have a little extra time today. Um, this is the third empire error that I think that we read this, this, this parable through. This idea that forgiveness is for my benefit. It releases me from the hold of other people's sin. So let's... Let's be honest. I have had some stuff in my life that I've had to forgive people for, but on balance with a whole lot of other people, my life has been fairly okay. Um, I have not had the thing, had to forgive the types of things that many other people have experienced. And so when I try to teach people about forgiveness, which I do, not just here, um, it's really challenging for me because I, it's really hard for me to tell a woman that was raped that she needs to forgive a rapist. I haven't had that experience. Um, and so, and I think a lot of people experience that. It's tough to tell someone else that they need to forgive something horrible that, or someone that did something horrible to them. So, um, one way that I think we try to make ourselves feel better about it and make other people feel better about it is saying, well, um, if you don't forgive somebody, it's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Um, and when you forgive, you're actually releasing yourself from the thing that that person did to you. It doesn't have power over you anymore. And I think there are some psychological truths to that, but I don't think that that is the point of what Jesus is trying to teach here. It would be nice if it was, but I don't think it is. Um, my friend Tyler Berkeley says, Peter's question sees the big hole in Jesus' theory, the one that doesn't make sense without resurrection. Everything that Jesus has just said about how to 
work towards repentance with a member of the family. That is a lot of accommodating the repentant sinner. So say this person actually does repent. Well, then you got to forgive them because they're still in the family. And so Peter's question is basically saying this. So say my, say my kingdom brother or sister sins against me, and I go through the whole cycle you just said, Jesus, and they repent, but then, and they actually repent, but then they do it again. How long do I have to let this cycle go on repeat? I think this question is fairly relatable. And Peter is actually trying. We, allow, we often paint him as this, like, talk first, think later kind of guy, but I think he's actually thinking about this. Because um, Jesus hasn't mentioned the word forgiveness in this. He's implying it, but he hasn't mentioned it. And it's like he's saying, okay, Jesus, your intervention that you just explained for sin in the family is actually pretty idealistic. Like, you are giving this person a whole lot of chance. So let's say, can we put a limit on this, though? Like, maybe seven. That seems generous. Seven times is a lot of times. He recognizes that the kind of forgiveness that Jesus is asking for does not actually free the forgiver. Because you still got to be in community with this person. And I think Peter also realizes this because the Hebrew concept of forgiveness, the word for forgive in the Old Testament is the same word as carry. So the concept is when you forgive someone, they have a debt to you. And this is why Jesus' parable works here. And you are carrying the responsibility for the debt when you forgive them. Kind of the opposite of what we try to say forgiveness does. Um, and Jesus actually confirms this idea of carrying it in his story. The king gets no benefit from forgiving the servant. He's out however many thousands of bags of gold or whatever, however translation put it. The king is carrying the debt. It does not get resolved. He's carrying it. And Jesus himself, Peter doesn't know this yet, but Jesus is going to carry Peter's debt and our debt and the Pharisees and Sadducees' debt and everybody's debt to a cross. Pastor Tim Keller wrote a really good book. You can look this up. It's called King's Cross. Um, and in that book, he says, every act of forgiveness is a sacrifice. Jesus' act of forgiveness is the ultimate sacrifice, but... Every time you forgive somebody, you are sacrificing them. It's hard. Forgiveness is hard. And this is the kind of forgiveness to reconciliation that is the kind of family trait Jesus wants for the members of the kingdom. And this is why I say it is only supernatural we cannot do this by ourselves, you guys. But there is a cutoff point of forgiveness. It's not a numerical cutoff point like Peter thought. Seven times, 490 times, whatever. The number is not the point. Forgiveness ends when the person who is offered forgiveness refuses that forgiveness by being unwilling or unable to forgive others. Our debts can only be carried for us as we are willing to carry the debts of others. So in the parable, the 
servant who's forgiven a humongous debt won't forgive the other servant's little tiny debt. And so therefore, now he's back on the hook for the whole rest of his debt. The king says, okay, I can deal with you until you can pay it off. Well, how is he going to pay it off when he's in jail? Right? This is not easy. I'm actually working through, I've been working through this year, a situation myself, not here, where I know I need to forgive a Christian family member. I'm starting to discover, I'm getting there, I'm not quite there, but I'm starting to discover that the best way to encourage my heart to forgive is not what I used to think and what I used to tell myself in these situations. I have to forgive if I want to be forgiven. When you think about it like that, forgiveness is not grace anymore. You have to work. Your forgiveness is dependent on your forgiveness. That's Then I'm earning my salvation by how well I can forgive somebody. I can't do it by myself. When I think if I have to forgive if I want to be forgiven, I can't do it. But if I remember that I already am forgiven and that it is a family trait to forgive and I'm part of the family because I'm forgiven and I want to look like Jesus, then Jesus can help me get to that place of forgiveness. Because I love Jesus and I want to look like him. And he already forgave me. And so why would I hold this against this other person? My fellow servant's debt to me contributes to my debt to the king. This happens in the parable too. Like I remember as a kid hearing this parable and thinking, well, the, the first servant might have been in less debt if the other servant didn't owe him money. But I mean, it wasn't going to help that much, right? So his, the, the unforgiving servant's debt was contributed to by the sin against him. However, he was still gigantic sinner. My fellow servants that to me influences my sin responses. I, re I respond sinfully. But I'm still a sinner that needs forgiveness. So, when I agree to carry the debt of my brother or sister or my fellow servant, their debt gets rolled into my debt and the king actually carries it for me. The whole thing in the shape of a cross. And so maybe carrying the other person's sin, the other person's forgiveness, really does set me free because Jesus can take it from there. Jesus carried the debt of the world, not so that he could be free of us, but for the joy set before him, and the joy set before him was a reconciled family of the kingdom of the heavens that he wanted to grow bigger and more beautiful and more reconciled as we practice the family resemblance. As we do that here, other people will be drawn in to the family and they will experience the reconciliation and the repentance and the forgiveness that's the joy set before us. So forgive and remember. Or remember that you're forgiven.
thanks for your forgiveness. Um, I think sometimes it's hard to remember that we have such a great debt to you and that we don't have it anymore because you paid for it. Please, we cannot forgive like you without you. But we are part of your family and we want to be like you. We want to look more like you. And so, Lord, we ask for your supernatural help. Thank you that where we are gathered in your name, you are in our midst to help us feel your presence and to confirm your truth and your righteousness and your justice, your goodness, and your reconciling love. 